As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, tow listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success. As sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. But in my opinion, they're not going to detect the dark matter because it doesn't exist. That's my personal opinion. here with Professor John Moffat. Part of what I'm doing with this channel, as well as this documentary, is to place people who I think have gotten not as much press as they should. You've heard of Lee Smolin, you heard, you've heard of Eric Weinstein, especially from the intellectual dark web. You've heard of Sabine Hassenfelder because of her YouTube channel. But not many people have heard, at least in the public, have heard of John Moffat, and he deserves just as much credit. He's put out quite a few theories and not many people put out even one theory. They usually develop an existing theory. So I'm super excited to meet with John in person. John, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. Let's hear about your modified theory of gravity. So, uh, this non-symmetric theory, which I worked on, uh, I decided that the anti-symmetric part of this metric tensor was not the electromagnetic field. It was additional degrees of freedom for gravity. It was part of the gravitational field, okay? And uh, so I called it the non-symmetric gravitational theory. Now comes the first acronym, NGT. Mm -hmm. Let me just break this down for the audience quickly. 
So in general, relativity of the two tensor, as I was saying before, then you have the symmetric. It's, it's a symmetric tensor, but any tensor can be broken up into symmetric and an anti-symmetric part. You can decompose it much like you can with coordinates. There's an X and Y. Or if you know about principal bundles, there's a horizontal and vertical part. So you can decompose. So you can decompose a tensor into symmetric and anti-symmetric part. Anti-symmetric part is just zero in the Einstein field equations, typically. And what Moffat is working on, or was working on, was realizing that this anti-symmetric part, which Einstein also tried to work on, is not, doesn't represent electromagnetism, which is why Einstein threw it out, because he was trying to make it fit. You're like, wait, maybe it's not electromagnetism, but it's something else. Okay. And you can correct me if I'm incorrect. Very good. Perfect. Um, that's a succinct description. Um, so I published a paper in Physical Review, 1979, called The New Theory of Gravitation. What you do is, in theoretical physics, is the following. You have an idea, as, as Richard Feynman said, you guess an idea. <laughs> now I'm going to discuss how we would look for a new law. In general, we look for a new law by the following process. First, we guess it. <laughs> then we come, well, don't laugh, that's the really true. And, okay, you have this idea, it takes seconds to have the idea, okay. But then you have to formulate it in, in terms of a mathematical system, mathematical equations, okay. So you do that, and it has to be self-consistent. And then you have to test it against experiment. And there's three phases. And the latter part, the third phase, is very important because you have to know whether it's correct or not, experimentally. It's physics. You're doing physics, not just mathematics. And if it's not, doesn't fit the data, then you throw away that guess, that idea, and you start some other idea, or you quit, quit. <laughs> and this is how physics is done. So uh, I had tried to find some way of uh, um, verifying this non-symmetric gravity theory. It's not easy. Doing experimental gravity physics is, is, is difficult. Of course, I had to agree with Einstein's theory of gravity. That's the first necessary thing to, to find is correct. If it doesn't agree with present solar experimental data, for example, then this, the whole thing is off. So, uh, also there were some um, people criticized it too, just, you have to have criticism. Physics is a very conservative business. You do not change the paradigm in physics unless you absolutely have to. And it's the paradigm shift is usually driven by experimental physics. Some the present theory, so-called standard theory, by the way, I don't like that word standard, but anyway, standard theory uh, doesn't agree with some data, or a theory comes forward that predicts, makes a prediction, and your theory, fits the data, that prediction fits, but the older theory doesn't 
this is how physics progresses. And uh, so also at this point, this was uh, 1979, so I worked on this at 1980s. I had students working on it. And uh, for example, I had Neil Cornish, graduate student, who um, was from Australia. And uh, he's now a professor at uh, University of Montana. Uh, he's in fact quite a senior professor there, head of a gravitational physics group. And um, so we, we worked on this, and I had a part potential solution for a black hole which did not have a horizon. Okay. And uh, using your modified me using this modified theory, a black hole with no horizon. That's right. Uh, Cornish applied for a position at Cambridge University to be a Hawking's assistant, Stephen Hawking's assistant, and he became his assistant. It's quite a funny story because, um, as Neil told me later, he was sitting in one of the rooms of the Department of Applied Mathematics in Silver Street, Cambridge, where Hawking was. And uh, he's looking at the blackboard, at a blackboard, and he suddenly hears this voice, computer voice. Uh, ah, so you're Neil Cornish. So you don't believe in black holes, I believe. That was his first thing. <laughs> so... Uh, Anyway, so uh, so this is the eighties. So I started. At, then I started doing particle physics again and left it for a while. I worked on unified theory again and with another graduate student, David Ball, who ended up as a professor at Simon Fraser University, British Columbia. He was chair actually of the department at one that? point. David Ball, B O A L. And also with Gabor Konstata, who became professor and dean of science at the uh, University of Winnipeg in Manitoba. Uh, we worked on, on that stuff, and, but uh, there was no clear experimental evidence that could prove it. You have to have one piece of experiment, of some, some prediction, something that you have in your theory that cannot be fitted by the other theories. This is very difficult. This doesn't happen often in physics. <laughs> um, Maxwell's prediction that light has to move as an electromagnetic wave with the speed of light is a prediction which uh, hurts. Hurts the physicists proved uh, experimentally to be correct. This is a remarkable result. Dirac, his Dirac equation, one of the fundamental equations of quantum field theory and quantum mechanics, relativistic quantum physics, uh, predicted antimatter. They went and looked for antimatter, and Anderson Caltech found in 1932. This is a, an amazing prediction, see? So on. There are, this happens a few times in physics. Einstein's theory of general relativity had to pass the solar system experiments. And the bending of light, of course, 1.575 arc seconds. Uh, the bending of light by the sun, 
Um, the first eclipse experiments were not all that great, actually. And time had to go on before we had a really confirmation of the bending of light prediction by Einstein. And uh, the perihelion advance of Mercury, this is the, uh, the Rosetta precession of Mercury's orbit. Mercury is the planet closest to the sun, and it precesses in a Rosetta shape, which uh, confounded Newtonian gravity. Where does your modified theory come in? So I had to fit all this with my modified theory. But then uh, I got interested in dark matter because there was beginning to be interest in uh, in the 70s. Vera Rubin, astronomer, the woman astronomer, and Ford, her colleague, did exp observations of uh, rotation curves of galaxies. If you observe Doppler shifts, uh, light coming and going, blue shifting, red shift. And from these observations, you can determine uh, how fast stars are moving around in the galaxy, in, in a galaxy. And they found with great surprise that the stars were moving faster than could be accounted for by Newtonian gravity. The, if you plot the rotation curve of the speed, velocity, vertical axis versus the distance of the size of the star from the center r equal to zero radially, then the curve comes up and flattens out, whereas Newtonian gravity predicts that it should fall off. Okay, and it's quite a six times the difference, the difference between Newtonian gravity and this flat rotation curve experimentally, observationally, is, is a factor of six. Hmm. And that's Thank confined you. to a galaxy. That's what happens in our galaxy. And Well, the reason I'm saying that is because we're gravitationally pulled by some other galaxy, so if that curve extended out extremely yeah. far, then we should be spinning. You get back to Newtonian gravity. You must do it as you go out towards infinity. So, so it flattens out and then comes back down again. So this intrigued me because Einstein gravity contains Newtonian gravity, and we effectively use Newtonian gravity for galaxies because the gravitation field is weak. Uh, all experiments um, on gravity are for weak gravitational fields. The solar system is weak gravity, except for neutron stars. Einstein knew it doesn't work. Dark matter. What is this? So in the 70s, the, the first physicist astronomer to, to note this problem was uh, Zwicky in 1933. Swiss astronomer, rather eccentric character. He has his name on virtually every aspect of physics. He did some calculation for what are called clusters. These are clusters of galaxies, not stars. Galaxies containing stars. And these clusters are huge. And uh, he found that what's, by what's called the Virial Theorem, that, they, that if you use Newtonian gravity, they can't be stable. They have to blow apart. Gravity is not sufficiently strong to maintain. Uh, 
equilibrium, stability. So he said, well, there's got to be extra matter, dark matter. And that's it, already 1933, and so on. But no one paid much attention to it. But because of Vera Rubin and the problem with the galaxies, now things became serious. And uh, more and more attention was paid to, to a dark matter. And now, it's to me, in my opinion, one of the major problems of modern physics, because due to the standard cosmology, which I will get into, uh, the standard cosmological model, uh, dark matter plays an essential role. 85-86% of all matter is dark matter, according to fitting the data, cosmological data. Um, so, after decades of effort and large sums of money, millions, billions of dollars, one experiment after another, they've been looking for dark matter particles, and no one can detect them. No one has detected them. Uh, so, what does this mean? <laughs> um, it, I tend, I call it the, potentially the modern ether, because ether was accepted as being a fact at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. It was a fact, because you had to have electromagnetic waves move some, through some medium, like sound moves through air as a medium. Maxwell believed in the ether. And, uh, and so what does your modified theory of gravity say about dark matter? So I decided to uh, say that, um, that the, this, the anti-symmetric part of my gravity theory was the part of gravity that modifies gravity mm, okay. without dark matter, you see? Because the first modification of gravity, a serious modification, was Isaac Newton, was uh, Albert Einstein, who modified Isaac Newton's gravitational theory, published in 18, in 1687, in the Precipia. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm modifying Einstein, okay? I mean, that's, Einstein is failing. Newtonian and Einstein gravity are failing. They cannot... Uh, describe this issue without inventing invisible matter. But one is always agnostic in physics. If you can find the dark matter next month, these huge experiments that are still ongoing, trying to detect what's called WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles, uh, if they find it, it fits in, and they can explain the rotation curves of the galaxies, then forget about modified gravity. <laughs> Einstein's theory of gravity is a beautiful theory. It fits the, the data, and that's it. But in my opinion, they're not going to detect the dark matter, because it doesn't exist. That's my personal opinion. Okay. So... Uh, so I published papers uh, doing this, identifying this anti-symmetric part with the, as a, a new degree of freedom in gravity, 
so that I could fit the galaxy rotation curves, the flattening of the curves, without dark matter. And I did, okay? And I published a paper in 1995, Physics Letters B, doing this. But it was... Um, astronomers complained because non-symmetric gravity theory is complicated. And they don't, astronomers don't like this complication. So I said, all right, I'll produce a simpler version. So I produced what's called uh, MSTG, metric skew symmetric gravity. Than your previous version? And it's taking the previous version and making it a simpler theory. Um, and when you say it's simpler, well, it, it's... What are you sacrificing for the simplicity? I'm sacrificing a lot of the mathematical mathematics. I made it into a simpler version by means of uh, throwing out a lot of the complicated nonlinear mathematics. Okay, so the way that I'm imagining it is like a Taylor expansion. You just take the linear part and just remove the higher. Exactly part. right. Okay. So then I've published papers with this on dark matter. I simplified it again because astronomer astronomers still complaining it. Mm. So I. I'll say, okay, I'll make it simpler. Okay, now so now it's down to scalar tensor vector gravity, STVG. And uh, this consisted of taking Einstein's theory. You've got to have Einstein's theory as a base. Otherwise, it's, it's not going to work. When you say you have it as a base, you mean you derive it in a limit, like Newtonian's driving? Right, exactly. Office. You have to do that. Einstein was confounded by the fact that he couldn't get Newtonian gravity over a period of a year or two. And he gave up at one point, but then he went back in with, with Grossman. And, and uh, eventually they got around to getting what's called the Poisson equation and Newtonian gravity as a limit, natural limit of Einstein gravity. So I had to have this. So it's okay. So now I have a, a theory where I need a stronger gravity. So I made... Big G, I call it Big G, uh, Newton's constant. I made it a variable constant. Interesting. And following what Paul Dirac did in 1938, proceeds the Royal Society. You paper. also changed in, na in nature, yeah, nature article. You also have a variable speed of light. Is that tied to the variable That's G? That's another theory. Okay. So, um, by the way. The photon of gravity, the quantum, the photons, in quotes, is uh, the graviton. The graviton is, is the quantum particle that is exchanged between particles, matter particles, and produces Newtonian gravity or Einstein gravity. Okay. In electrodynamics, Maxwell's electrodynamics, the relativistic version of Maxwell's theory, the photon is exchanged between electrons to produce the Coulomb force, okay? So the graviton is the photon. No one's ever detected a graviton, and probably no one ever will, because gravity is so weak. It would take the whole galaxy as an accelerator to detect a graviton. As Freeman Dyson said, if you have a big enough mass to... to uh, detect a graviton, that mass would collapse to a black hole. Anyway, that's the theory, okay, the graviton. So, 
So here I have the metric tensor field of Einstein, and I have a new degree of freedom, the vector field. And the vector field corresponds to a spin one graviton, whereas the metric tensor GMU corresponds to a spin, spin two graviton. So I complete gravity theory with an extra graviton, spin one graviton. And this vector field is sourced by matter, by mass. Okay. So the electromagnetic potential, A mu, of Maxwell's equations is sourced by electric charge. My vector field is sourced by mass, just like Einstein's metric theory, field theory is field is sourced by matter, by density of matter. So that's affected to the theory, and I wrote it up and uh, published it in 2006. And uh, uh, eventually I started calling it MOG, Modified Gravity, because it's Mordecai Milgram in Israel. He was the first to publish a, a, a modification of Newtonian gravity uh, called MOND, Modified Newtonian Dynamics, right. in 1983. And he, he's a pioneer, I mean, to, to do this because people were critical, I mean, you know, modifying Einstein gravity. So um, this is MOND. But MON is a non-relativistic formula. It's not relativistic. It's just a modification. It's a modification of Newtonian gravity. And it's based on assuming that there's a special acceleration, A sub zero, A for acceleration. And it's zero, A sub zero, it makes it special <laughs> as rotation. And this is a number. It's, it's uh, 1.2 times. 10 to the minus power, 10 to the power minus 10 meters per second squared. This is the unit of acceleration. That's MOND. Even if MOND had correct predictions, it would still be incomplete because how does it comport with the general relativity would That's be the open right. question? Because people attempted to generalize this non-relativistic phenomenological formula, a simple formula. By the way, astronomers like this simple formula. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> Astronomers like the simple math. Simple, yeah. So it's a high school level formula, okay? So um, I don't want it's not a sense of my sense of humor is, but I, I, I call it Marx instead of Mond and, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. S, STVG instead of <laughs> But uh, this is silly. But. Um, Mog, you see, it's important, it's called Mog because it's modified gravity. Right. As opposed to modified Newtonian dynamics. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have general, you've got to have general relativity. Okay, so the big question everyone wants to know, and the experimentalists who are watching this, is do you make predictions that agree with the data? Okay. So back to the three phases of physics. Have an idea, guess it. Mathematical formulation, STVG, you publish it. Now comes what I call, I call it physics is imagination in a straitjacket. Imagination, the idea, the straitjacket is experimental physics. 
can you agree with experimental physics? Can you predict something that the other people can't fit? It's hard. That's why physics is so hard. Because it, when I paint, uh, I still paint. Um, there's no criteria you have to match. No, I, you, I paint my, I don't think it's all left, it's all right brain, more or less, you know, feelings, color, composition. So I finish, put it up on the wall, and you either like it or you don't like it. You know, I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to prove the painting, see. It's not from logical, I don't have to prove it. Just if you don't like it, well, okay. Maybe you like this painting. But um, in physics, the test is the experiment. And this is what makes physics so hard. It's very challenging. That's why I like it, okay? So, uh, okay, moving forward. Um, one paper after another. Uh, I've been publishing papers now for 14 years. Uh, STVG was published in 2006. Um, so then in 2015, I published a, paper, a long paper uh, on mock black holes, because I found a black hole solution, okay? Right. And I call them mock black holes. I call them Schwarzschild-Mogg black holes or Kerr-Mogg black holes. Kerr, my former collaborator and friend from Trinity. And uh, there's been a lot of, I've lost track how many papers are published on mock black holes. Oh, okay, great. Because one of my questions was, what's the reception like from the physics community? Uh, I've, there must be, I don't know, I'm guessing 50, 60 papers. That's a lot of citations, hundreds of citations, in fact. I'm up to something like 6,000, 7,000 citations. Holy moly. Yeah. There's something called ResearchGate, which is a portal. Congrats mm -hmm. on that. So I'm up to something like 11,000 read, readerships. Holy moly. Yeah. So a lot of people know me from my physics. But um, uh, this paper I just sent you, just from Chinese, from that China. That just got published yesterday. It's on, on the archive. It'll be published eventually. It's a very, very good paper. Because I published a, in my big paper on mock black holes, published the European Physical Journal C. And this is a major European journal in 2016. And subsequent papers. Uh, I published a, a, a solution of my modified gravity theory for an object which may not have horizons and is regular. It does not have any singularity at the center. It's completely regular. Interesting. But it's close to having a horizon because there's a critical, in, in the development, there's a free parameter called alpha in the mathematics of the the metric describing my Mark black hole. Uh -huh. And this alpha is a deviation parameter. It deviates the theory from Einstein black holes, the size of alpha. When alpha is zero, you get Einstein black holes. 
When half is non-zero, you don't, okay? So in addition to the uh, black hole with a horizon, actually, my solution mock black hole always has two horizons. Uh, and the parameters are just mass and spin and alpha, three parameters, that's it. So, uh, I published a, a, a... No charge? Mass, spin, and alpha? No charge. No electric charge. By the way, black holes, astrophysical bodies do not have electric charge. They're electrically neutral because you have positive charge electrons and you have positive and negative charge, clumps of charge, right? And they neutralize one another. I mean, this is this is electrically neutral. All astrophysical bodies are bodies are electrically neutral. The sun is electrically neutral. There may be a tiny amount of charge, but it's negligible. So it has very little, if any, effect on the on space-time cool. metric okay. uh, through Maxwell-Einstein equations. Okay, this is for astrophysics. So black holes should be electrically neutral. Papers are published showing this is the case. They neutralize. Uh, so uh, they discharge their charge. <laughs> so this theory is just mass. But mass is positive. It doesn't have a negative counterpart. There's no negative mass. So there's no electric so-called equivalent of the dipole. There's no mass dipole, okay, because you can't have a positive and negative mass at two poles. So, um, anyway, so... Um, By the way, if someone is interested and they have a penchant for mathematics as well as physics, and they want to learn about your theory, do they just read the papers, or do you have a book that you published, much like there are books that introduce someone to general relativity from nothing? No, I haven't actually published... Um, a textbook on this. I'm too busy working out the theory. Publishing, I, I do these, but this, I just dictate them. But doing a textbook is much more complicated because you have to deal with all the equations and this. But eventually I hope to get a, a review. But um, there was a review published by um, Daniela Perez and Gustav Romero. They're at the Institute for Physics in Argentina, and uh, they published a whole, a large, uh, big review of my mug in a book. What do you think of current theories of everything? Are they missing some key ingredient? Are they missing the, that they're trying to unify GR as it is, and they're not unifying MOG? Or is there something else that you feel like they're lacking? Okay, well, there's a long history to this. We just talked about unified theory way back, Harman Weil and Albert Einstein, 1918. But, um, um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't, I there's loop, there's M theory. I'm not happy with this, this um, toe, the uh, acronym toe, yeah. because what does it mean to have a theory of everything? I mean, what, everything? I mean, the whole universe, uh, Biochemistry, chemistry, consciousness. I don't know what, what does it mean to have a theory. I don't understand what that means. So you much prefer grand unified theory so, than total. Grand unified theory, or well, grand unified theory 
somehow tied in with gravity. Have you had a chance to look at the Eric Weinstein video that I sent you? Yeah, I didn't understand it. I don't, uh, you have to ask him about that. What about Stephen Wolfram? Have you heard of Stephen? Uh, well, they, I appreciate that they, they both made a lot of money. <laughs> I, apparently, Eric Weinstein is manager of a huge fund, yeah. Net, Netron fund in New York. So he, he's also a mathematician. Uh, so he has, has fun with it. Fine. Um, but um, these theories have not been successful. Quantum gravity, let's talk about that for a minute. Because I've, I've published papers on quantum gravity. I tried to publish on all of these things. And uh, several papers, actually, over the years. Quite, quite well cited, cited, actually. I published one paper in 2000 called Non-Commutative Quantum Gravity, which has many citations. So you have the coordinates of space-time not commuting, like momentum and position in quantum mechanics, non-commutative. Non-commutative gravity. Yeah. Moffat, okay. The problem with quantum gravity is that there are no data Okay, let me repeat that. There are no quantum gravity data. And you can't do physics without data. That is my main criticism. There may be. I mean, I'm not saying there won't be. But as of August 2020, there, there are no... Yeah, let's put it this way. In quantum field theory, the Feynman graphs describe what's going on relativistic quantum field theory. So you have what's called tree graphs. These are trees, okay? So you have a line here, and you have a line there. These are two electrons, and they inter interchange the photon, which is a quiggly line, and it's just trees. Mm -hmm. But that's classical ele electromagnetism. It's classical electrodynamics, tree graphs. So the quantum comes in with what's called loops. So now you begin to take the lines and, and make them into loops, close in on loops, okay? And these loops are the quantum corrections to the classical tree graphs, okay? So let's go to gravity. Gravity, you have, uh, you have a neutron, two neutrons or two electrons, and they have mass, so the mass uh, causes a graviton to be interchanged between the two massive electrons or protons, whatever. And that's classical. I can then derive from that tree graph with graviton and two protons, I can derive Newton's law of gravity, one of our square law. Dealing with Getting general relativity is a different business. And the loops, quantum gravity, comes in when I form these loops, which are proportional to Planck's constant. Now, now Planck's constant comes in to the game. And these are called self-energy loops. So yeah, they're loop graphs. And there is no experiment that can determine these loop graphs. 
None. This is where the quantum gravity comes in. So you construct a theory of gravity, a quantum gravity, you know, there are lots of, there's loop quantum gravity where you uh, take space-time and make it into little pieces, atomic pieces, lattices, and uh, you then try to get general relativity coming up, merging out of this spin network and all that. Uh, there's a um, string theory where you have these strings, like uh, violin strings, and one of the strings is a spin two graviton. <laughs> so it, it, these strings oscillate, and they're strings, they're not points in space time. So your issue is that they're theorizing with no constraints because there's not much data? Yeah, so string theory has to be formulated in 10 dimensions or 11. Otherwise, it's not self-consistent. And uh, you have to have supersymmetry. Supersymmetry has to come in. Otherwise, it's not self-consistent, physically speaking. What's the difference between being self-consistent and being consistent? Well, if, for example, you need more dimensions in string theory. Otherwise, the... Lorentz algebra doesn't close. It's not Lorentz invariant. Um, it's because the string is a, a surface. It's not a point. And, uh, and so then I worked on string theory. I once gave a course of summer lectures at the University of Western Ontario in London for, for students. And I published it, actually. And that turned me off string theory. <laughs> in fact... I, the, the claim is that string theory is finite to all orders of perturbation theory. So you take my tree graphs and my loops, and you do what's called perturbation theory. The loops are perturbations on the string, on the tree graphs. And in string theory, these loops are supposed to be finite, whereas in standard quantum electrodynamics or quantum field theory, they lead to divergences. So you have to renormalize the loops. You know, you have to take one infinity and subtract it from another to get a finite result. So, um, uh, so the, the gravity is, by the way, gravity is not renormalizable. This was proved by Tuft and Veltman and others in the 70s. And this was a big problem. And uh, so it doesn't behave like other standard quantum field theories and particle physics. And uh, so it's not really normal. It's just divergences. You can't get rid of them. But, uh, so um, this is what loop current gravity is supposed to deal with. And string theory is supposed to be finite. But I discovered that I wasn't convinced that string theory is finite. I'm not. There was never any rigorous proof that string theory is finite. Still to this day? Yeah. And so let's get to the phase three. What about testing these theories? Well, string theories was a theory of everything, supposedly, a toe. Okay, that's where the acronym came from. And uh, um, Edward Witten and so forth uh, in the 80s claimed that this is the, the theory, okay, of everything, everything in particle in physics. So... Uh, well, no one's ever detected a higher dimension beyond three spatial dimensions. 
time is a dimension, but it's, that's just space-time, clocks versus rods. And, uh, okay, so we never seen a higher dimension. The Large Hadron Collider has looked for them for years and not find nothing, no experimental data. Okay, supersymmetry, we need supersymmetry to make the fermion sector of string theory consistent. There are reasons why I say consistent, but let's go on. Um, so they've, they've uh, hunted for supersymmetry for years, LEC. We know supersymmetry doesn't exist up to about 3 TeV, 3 or 4 TeV. And so it's got to exist below 1 TeV to really solve a lot of supersymmetric problems. So that's all gone, okay? There's no evidence for supersymmetry. <clears throat> so the Large Hadron Collider is at 14 TeV. Uh, well, it's been working at 13, 14, 13 TeV. And they hope to get it up to 14 TeV with even beyond that. But you know, the supersymmetric particles keep getting heavier and heavier and we can't detect them. So that's gone. So what's left of string theory? Okay. There's no experimental test of string theory that you can say, well, this experiment's done and it passes this test and no other theory, <laughs> no theory without supersymmetry can fit that data. Doesn't exist. You modify gravity. Have you worked on modifying QFT? Okay, so now I, I, the standard model, what I, why I formulate alternatives is not because I'm trying to be a difficult person. I'm just curious about how um, stable, how um, true the so-called standard model is. How robust is it? Okay. So that's why I, I, and also I'm mentally somewhat lazy. I, I can't just sit and read someone's textbook. So in order to learn a theory, I, I produce another theory. And through this, I can't produce another theory unless I really understand the so-called standard model theory. And that makes me, forces me to understand it. So this is a strange mental way of proceeding, but that's, that's, why, I, that's why all these alternatives come out. Because I'm trying to understand the standard model by producing another one. And uh, so the other model is also a straw, straw man woman, so to speak. You know, I can knock it down or make it look true. So the way that I analogize it is that it would be if, as if someone can't watch movies or can't understand movies. So they're like, let me make my own movie. And then I got to watch this movie and understand how this director made it in order for me to make mine. And that's my actual goal is to understand this director. Yes, that's right. Okay. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, so supersymmetries. So, they, so then, yeah, so then I got interested in the fact that renormalization theory. So, I, I mean, I published papers on, on particle physics from the, after doing my PhD. So I've been doing this for years. I had PhD students working on just on particle physics, quark physics, and heaven knows, lots of. I had 38 graduate students, by the way, who did PhDs. That's quite a lot. So, um, so I, I was interested in the following. Can you develop 
a theory which is ultra, ultra, ultraviolet complete, UV complete. In other words, in standard quantum field theory, these loops I was talking about, they have divergences. They're called ultraviolet, ultraviolet divergences. And they have to be cancelled using renormalization theory. So you do what's called charge and mass renormalization. And uh, Dirac never liked renormalization theory. He thought it was, it was unsatisfactory. It was rather artificial. You take one set of infinities and subtract from another. You know, why do you have these infinities in the first place? And Feynman, in the 80s, he was interviewed. He said he, he wasn't satisfied with renormalization theory, even though he was one of the inventors with his uh, Nobel Prize in quantum electrodynamics. And um, so I constructed a different quantum field theory. And I use what so instead of having in in these graphs, you have uh, two graphs, two lines, or three lines meeting at a point. It's called a vertex. Okay, and that's that's where these three particles interact at the point. So in local quantum field theory, they interact at a point, and this point is effectively described by a delta function. Invented by Dirac, by the way, who didn't like renormalization theory. And I, as, I, as Feynman already understood in his papers from 1947-1950, uh, this already there, you already have a problem. As soon as you introduce the delta function and the point uh, for the Feynman graphs, you get a, you get divergence immediately. So, delta function in mathematics is what's called a distribution. You know, you get into distribution theory. So I thought, well, uh, I'm going to give a different distribution at a point. So I use what's called an entire function. Entire function of mathematics. Entire function. Entire function is a for a distribution has an infinite number of derivatives. Uh, it has, in, in the complex momentum square plane, it's different there, are no, it's, there are no poles, but there's a essential singularity at infinity. That's the only singularity. So it's an infinite Taylor series of, derivat Taylor series of derivatives. So it's infinite derivative theory, okay? And so I, it becomes non-local. The operators become non-local. So I have a non-local field theory. But I stress, that I've published this, that I proved that even though the operator field operators are non-local, the theory does not violate microcausality. Microcausality is where the... Microcausality micro is the commutator of, um, two f of a field at two different points. At, and they're supposed to vanish with space-like separation outside the light cone. And I proved that this is, even though the field operators are non-local, they still have these vanishing commutators outside the light cone. So the theory is local, it's local, even though it's called non-local. <laughs> the actual result in the end is local. That's interesting. So I published a paper in 1989, Physical Review, long paper, 
doing this. And so what's uh, the reception been pro like? Proof that it was finite to all orders. It was unitary to all orders. And what's the reception been like? Okay, so Richard Woodard, uh, I got to know him. He's a professor at the University of Florida at Gainesville. Uh, this was 1990. So he came up to Toronto to give some lectures. I invited him up. He said, what are you doing? I said, non-local field theory. What? He said, well, that can't work. I said, well, I'm publishing this paper. <laughs> so so uh, six weeks later, in comes uh, an email. We were already emailing then, uh, saying, I've had epiphany, epiphany. I think this is really interesting. <laughs> Let's collaborate. So we collaborated with uh, myself and his student and my student, uh, my postdoc. And um, we published a long paper in Physical Review where we did quantum electrodynamics from start to finish. Everything. <laughs> and uh, proved that the theory is unitary to all. This is S-matrix. It's unitary to all orders. All the perturbation loops are finite to all orders. And the tree graphs work and da da da. So we really went to town on this. So that paper's had many citations, okay? All right. So people are publishing just the other day, a paper came out, they're coming out citing my papers on non local. I've had hundreds of citations on this. So um, I got back into this recently. Because I switched, I thought I'd be, been done enough black holes and gravity. Let's do some particle physics for a change. So I looked back into the standard model. And the Higgs particle has been discovered. The discovery of the Higgs particle is, is the narrative for that is in my book, uh, Cracking the Particle Court of the Universe, o Oxford University Press. No. Uh, that's Tom Collins, Harper Collins. It's Oxford, Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so there, the standard model. So what you do is you have the strong nuclear force is called quantum chromodynamics, and you have quarks, all the quarks, and the 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 photon in this case, the quantum is the gluon. And the gluon is colored. And when you say quote, photon in quotations, you mean the, the particle that mediates the force? It's the medium of the force. The medium of the force. The mediator of the force. And then you have uh, uh, electromagnetism, electrodynamics, QED is called. And uh, you have uh, electroweak. And these are put together, were put together by. Glashow uh, and uh, basically as SU3 cross SU2 cross U1. SU3 is the color nuclear force, strong force group. SU2 is the um, SU2 cross U1 is the electroweak, and the U1 is the electromagnetism. So these are the three forces of nature put together in this. It's called a simple group. And um, why is it SU3 equals SU2 equals U1? So 
So how do they do this? Okay, well, in order to get a renormalizable theory, we use a delta function for the tree, the graph, Feynman graphs at the point, local field theory. Um, you um, you need a gauge theory. The theory has to be gauge invariant. And quantum electrodynamics is gauge invariant because the photon is massless. So massless theories are gauge invariant, and gauge invariant theories are normalizable. <laughs> okay. Now, the quantum chromodynamics, SU3, the gluons are massless. Hooray, we have a gauge theory. All right, and it's, it's renormalizable. It's called Q, QCD, quantum chromodynamics. What about the, the weak force? So there's always been a problem. So the weak force, we, these forces are described by, fields are described by Yang-Mills theory. And Yang-Mills theory is what's called in mathematics a non-abelian gauge theory. It's gauge theory. The particle mediating particles are massless. Okay, so for a long time, the, the problem was that, that elect, the electric weak is not massless because the mediating particles are the, the Z or the Z boson and the W bosons. There are three of them, two W charged and one neutral Z. And they're not massless. In fact, they have big masses. And the fermions are not massless. The electrons and quarks. The top quark is, uh, the heaviest quark is 173 GeV. So compared to the electron, which has a mass of a half an MeV. So, uh, okay, so SU2 one is not gauging very So it can't be renormalized. You can prove this. What to do? This took a long time. So uh, the scalar field was invented the Higgs field, which has the quantum numbers of the vacuum. So uh, what they had to do was to say that the electroweak starts with zero mass, so we put all the masses to zero. The W, the Z, and the photons, zero mass. Mm. Okay, well, you know. 173 GV is put to zero, okay? And the, the uh, W mass, Z mass, was 90 GV or so, zero. Okay, well, everything is fine. So then what they said was that the Higgs field, the so-called Higgs mechanism, um, breaks SU2 cross U1 down to U1. So you break the electroweak down to the electromagnetic. And during this process, um, the Higgs field produces the masses. Magic, okay. So, great, now the theory is renormalizable. So this Higgs field has what's called a potential, potential V of phi. Phi is the Higgs field. And it's equal to V of phi equals lambda phi to the fourth. Phi is the fourth, fourth power of the scalar Higgs field. Assume that. 
If you assume that, then you can get what's called Higgs mechanism. It's the breaking of the Higgs symmetry, SU2 cross U1, okay? which is supposed to produce the masses. You keep drawing this because the Mexican hat, or is this referring to something else? That's right. So, uh, this is all done at the classical level, the Higgs mechanism, not the quantum level. It's classical. But then there's something called the Yukawa Lagrangian, the Yukawa Lagrangian, where you have coupling of massive particles with the Higgs field. You multiply them together to, to interact. And uh, for example, the electron field is multiplies the spinner electron direct field, multiplies the Higgs scalar field stuff. And they have a coupling constant, G, G sub E for electron. So where do the masses come from? Well, it turns out that the symmetry breaking can sort of produce the W and the Z mass. You can get a prediction for the W and the Z mass, which looks okay looks reasonably good. But the fermion masses, all the quarks and leptons and so on, they have to be put in by hand. And each mass has a coupling constant in this so-called Yukawa Lagrangian, which is just fitted by hand. So you never calculate the masses. It's put in by hand as a free parameter. That's why the standard model has a something like 21 or 26 free parameters, depending on how you count. It's lots of parameters. So I looked at this and I thought, okay, well, let me do my finite quantum field theory, as I call it. And uh, it works whether you have masses or not, because it's not, it has a renormalization, but it's a finite renormal. There are no infinities. So I don't have to worry about putting the masses to zero. So I rewrote the standard model, assuming that the masses are not zero, that the symmetry is what it is. Uh, SU3 equals SU2 equals U1. It's not broken. SU2 equals U1, it's not broken. And when you came up with this, this was before the Higgs was discovered? Yeah, well, I did that. I was doing this before the Higgs. But then when I f the Higgs was found, I had to put this in. As, as a particle field, which I did. And by the way, you need the Higgs field still. I don't need it for renormalization, and, and I don't need it for producing the masses, okay? But you do need it because without the Higgs exchange between two uh, quarks, you violate what's called unitarity at a perturbation level already at about 600 GeV. This is bad. So then when you put in the Higgs field and to redo the calculation, it cancels all the unitary violations. So this means you get unity. You have to have unitarity. Probability has to be conserved. So you still need the Higgs. Okay, so I redid the whole thing and made everything finite, worked, did all the calculations, Prove that I get all the low energy experiments of the Hadron Collider. <laughs> and um, and uh, now comes the problem. How do I calculate the masses? 
no one's ever been able to do it. The Fermi analysis. So I work on this occasionally, and I have a way of doing it. So Steven Weinberg, who won a Nobel Prize for uh, the uh, initiating this idea of the Higgs mechanism and putting all masses to zero for leptons, it's called the lepton model at the time. Um, he has recently published a paper trying to solve the problem of the masses. And Stephen Weinberg is very clever, by the way. Stephen Weinberg's still alive? Yes, he's about my age. And uh, he's, I think he's, he's brilliant. Uh, so, but he failed to do it by, by his own admission. Yeah. Was he using your modified no. quantum field theory? No, he just doing the standard. So another criticism is that there's no experimental data that shows that this Higgs potential is lambda, which the coupling constant lambda times phi to the fourth. There's, in order to, to do the experimental verification, you need a Higgs decaying into two other Higgses, or three. <laughs> and this is the amplitude for this decay product is the tiniest. So there's no evidence for this potential. That's the standard tale that I've heard and that everyone has heard. Yeah, it is. The I statement is that the quarks and the electrons move through this Higgs field vacuum field molasses, yeah. and they're moving very slowly. Right. And the heavier particles move in the molasses slower than the faster ones. This is all okay, I mean. It's a hypothesis, a theory, and I don't necessarily believe in it. Imagine this case. This is a hy completely hypothetical, but imagine we see two electrons and they repel. Well, now we see them, but we see them without photon. We didn't discover the photon. Then later we discover the photon, and then we say, oh, okay, that makes sense because we thought that there must be a mediator, an exchange particle between these two, but we've never seen them exchange. So it would be like that. We see the photon. We think there's supposed to be a particle, and that's why we predicted the photon, but you're saying we just found the photon, in this case the Higgs, but we don't see its mechanism in the way that you're saying the mechanism exists. We just see the Higgs, and the Higgs can be explained alternatively, via your theory at least. Right. Okay. The point is that all experiments with Higgs particles, that all you ever do experimentally is look at the what's called the decay products, because these particles are so short-lived, they only live... 10 to the power of minus 20, 10 to the minus 22, 10 to the minus 23 seconds. So you can't scatter the Higgs off one another like you scatter off electrons. Electrons are stable particles, and protons are stable. You can scatter them, but these things are... <laughs> so what you do is to scatter it, you, you do experiments on the decay products. How does this heavy particle decay into the others and so on. And from that you extract the electroweak physics. So in our time, I published papers um, where I did way back we have to do some years quick. ago. Uh, Mexican hat, and, but now we're violating special relative Lorentz invariance, okay? And so we violate SO 3 comma 1 down to SO2. And um, 
so the Mexican hat, as you remember, you go around the rim and you have different arrows. Mm -hmm. So I choose to break the arrow in the direction of time for cosmology. And so I start with a very low entropy and the entropy increases as the, as the universe expands. That's the explanation for the arrow of time through violation of Lorentzian invariance. But this happens fractions of seconds after the Big Bang. Okay. The violation of Lorentzian invariance in experiments today is it's forget it. There is no for me the violation occurs seconds of fractions fractions of seconds after the Big Bang. And then it immediately through a phase transition goes directly to the speed of light that we know measure today. That's important. And whereas in, in the, if you violate Lorentz invariance, the way Beckenstein did with Milgram's relativistic extensions, you get into trouble. And uh, incidentally, the I have met Feynman here. Yeah. I had dinner with him in Hungary once at a conference. He and his Any wife. Any interesting story? He was great. Um, I went to one of his lectures at Caltech, and uh, he was he gave lectures on quantum field theory, and I sat in the audience, and. Um, he was lecturing away, and I put my hand up to scratch my head. And he looked at me, he said, yes, do you have a question? <laughs> I said, well, I'm just scratching my head. He said, well, that's legitimate. You're allowed to do that. He had a great, great sense of humor. <laughs> I also met Gelman, of course. I knew Gelman quite well, Murray Gelman. It's in my this, so funny stories, anecdotes. By the way, I want to interject the following. That when you modify gravity today, okay, and you think you can do without dark matter or dark energy or explain dark energy, that's another dark issue. You have to fit all the data. You can't cherry pick the data. So MON does okay for galaxies. It doesn't do well for clusters. This is well known. Okay. Uh, so I have to fit, Mark has to fit Both. galaxy data. It has to fit what's called the lensing data. I just published a paper on that, another one. So it has to fit all the cosmological data. It's, it's a huge amount of data. So life has become very difficult for those people who think they can modify gravity. Okay. Is you have to fit all the data. Otherwise, someone comes along and says, okay, you fit the galaxies, well, you fitted that. But what about the cosmology? What about the, do you fit the acoustical power spectrum at this, the cosmic microwave background? Do you fit the matter power spectrum? That's the uh, spectrum for statistical analysis of pairs of galaxies. And do you fit the structure growth of, of cosmology? So all of this has to be fitted. So I had to learn all of this. You have to do all the astronomy, and you have to do all the cosmology, solar system data, everything has to be fitted. And so far, Monk is, is successful. 
there are issues to do with what's called dwarf galaxies. By the way, there's just a big review put out by Ivan de Martino, uh, published in a journal uh, just recently, where he reviews my Mog. He reviews Mond and Mog as the two. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Leading theories of gravity without dark matter, okay? Mm -hmm. And... uh, the galaxy fits are very good and so on, and like cluster fits and that uh, cosmology. But uh, there's something called dwarf galaxies. It's very wrong, dwarf galaxies in our galaxy. These are tiny galaxies. And uh, they have what's called very large mass to light ratios, M over L, which are huge. And so the idea is that the dark matter dominates them. But um, the problem is that they're probably not realized. Some of these dwarf galaxies are not stable. Tidal deformation destroys the stability realization. And so you can't use them as data. So, I mean, so that's how it goes. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. 
Visit HensonShaving.com slash everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G.com slash everything and use the code everything. So what are you working on these days? Uh, well, let's see. I've been working on my modified gravity, which I call, the acronym is MOG, which stands for modified gravity, but privately modified Moffat gravity. But <laughs> Moffat gravity. But that's not public, it's private joke. Right, right, right. Um, yes, and um, there are various issues I've been developing uh, generalizations of uh, Einstein's gravity theory already at the PhD level <laughs> in Cambridge, at Trinity College, Cambridge, and uh, over the years. But I've worked on many other subjects. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, it's developing this theory. I also work on uh, quantum field theory and particle physics and cosmology. And those are my three main areas. <clears throat> Why don't you tell the audience a bit about your books? Yeah, so this is my latest book, uh, The Shadow of the Black Hole, uh, Oxford University Press publication, just came out. Uh, it's a history of uh, the gravitational waves, their detection by LIGO Observatory. And... Uh, the history of black holes. And uh, so the book has a narrative uh, description of uh, LIGO detection of gravitational waves and uh, also the uh, uh, observation of the first image of a black hole in the galaxy M M80, M M31. Uh, and uh, so that's the book. Um, I also published a, a memoir, Einstein wrote back some years ago, and uh, this is my first book, Reinventing Gravity, which has a, a history of gravity, starting from uh, the prehistoric times and through the Greeks and uh, the history of how gravity developed through Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein. And, uh, and then uh, this is the book before my latest, uh, Cracking the Particle Code of the Universe. It's the history of uh, particle physics and uh, the uh, ramifications of uh, quantum field theory in that development and all and the description of the Large Hadron Collider and uh, all its findings over the years. When you were mentioning the Schwarzschild radius and the equations, you said that it's dependent on the choice of coordinates, the singularity. Can you explain to the audience, because to them it, they might think, well, what do you mean dependent on a choice of coordinate system? First of all, what the heck is a coordinate system and why does the singularity depend on that? Yes, well, the original solution, the Schwarzschild solution, 
published by Schwarzschild, uh, who was an astronomer. And um, by the way, he did the work in the trenches of the First World War. He was in the military, German military. Uh, in the artillery. <laughs> and Einstein thought that his equation was so complex that finding an exact solution would be near impossible. And then one year later, Schwarzschild, while in the trenches, came up with the solution. Well, he actually went back to Berlin and wrote it up there. But then he developed an autoimmune disease, an immune disease, which uh, killed him. He died uh, not soon after publishing the paper. So, yeah, so the, in the original mathematical solution, uh, they, one uses what's called Schwarzschild coordinates. Coordinates are x, y, z, three-dimensional, and time is the fourth dimension. So that produces space-time. And uh, you can choose other coordinates. Uh, for example, if you do a... Uh, picture the the Earth, the planet, you can use polar coordinates or other kinds of coordinates to determine the uh, uh, the uh, structure of the of, of Earth. So if you use polar coordinates, you get a singularity on the north and south pole. And similarly, in the Schwarzschild solution, uh, the, the horizon, the Schwarzschild radius, is singular in Schwarzschild coordinates, but you choose other coordinates uh, for example, it was the mathematicians from Princeton published a paper where they did what's called analytic continuation of the Schwarzschild coordinates space to a much bigger space in which the the actual membrane of the horizon was not singular. So, so this was a problem because. Uh, Einstein did, wasn't aware of this issue of coordinates, and uh, he, people didn't believe in the black holes because it was singular. Einstein didn't like singularities in his theory. He always tried to avoid them. And uh, <clears throat> this prevented them, this issue of the singular surface horizon prevented them from, from believing in uh, these black holes. Um, but eventually that was cleared up in the early 60s. And uh, so then from that understanding of not having a singular membrane surface, horizon surface, one could begin to believe that these black holes made mathematical sense. And by the way, there's another singularity for the black hole. Uh, when a star collapses because it has a large mass, too massive, to uh, sustain itself, uh, it collapses because the pressure due to uh, what's called degenerate gas, neutron gas, for example, a neutron particle gas, uh, it, the pressure there is not big enough to balance uh, due to the attraction of gravity, so the star collapses, and it collapses in Einstein's classical theory to a singularity at the center at the coordinate center, which is radially, the distance radially is uh, zero at the center. And this singularity has bothered, bothered physicists uh, from the beginning. 
And so uh, this, is, this is an issue which I can get to eventually. So these are the two possible singulars. The singular singularities at the center in Einstein's classical theory is there. You can't avoid, avoid it by choosing another coordinate system. It's called essential singularity. Whereas, as I explained for the horizon, you can choose different coordinates and not have a singular surface. So the coordinate singularities are more like figments of your coordinate choice, and the essential singularity is one that is truer? That's right. It's always there in the classical theory of gravity, Einstein's theory. You started studying physics around the time you were 16. You had a correspondence with Einstein directly. 20. When you were 20, you had the correspondence with Einstein. And then you started developing your own theory, an extension of general relativity. Okay. Well, I come. I had an unusual background. Um, I left school when I was... 15, because I wanted to be an artist. What kind of artist? I paint, I still paint, um, abstract painting. So I joined, uh, I went to Paris when I was 17, just turned 17. And uh, I had learned about a Serge Polyakov, an abstract painter who had exhibited paintings in Copenhagen uh, before I left for Paris. And I was very impressed with his work. So I looked him up. He lived in Wittesen. And how do you look him up? This is before the internet. I looked him up in the sense of <laughs> not the internet. I went to his house. His, his, he had a little apartment. He lived there with his wife, um, Madame Polyak. He just showed up at his house. A 17-year-old kid. 17-year-old kid. And he had his little boy, Alex Polyakov. And that's where he painted this room. And uh, he played the guitar at night because he wasn't more well known at all. Then he became famous. And uh, I was there with him for a, for about a year. So you showed up at his house and you stayed for a year? Or you just No, no, I, I had a room in Porto Leon outside near, uh, in the suburbs of Paris. Just one room. And... Uh, uh, I had saved up some money to, to be in Paris, but the money was running out <laughs> and I couldn't find any employment because I was British-Danish, actually a British citizen and, uh, because of my father. And uh, so I painted. So he one day he said, bring some paintings along to the studio and uh, we're going to show you in a show. At, uh, at the Musée, Musée d'Art Moderne, at Avenue Wilson in Paris. So all of a sudden I have four paintings up, four or five, in this big uh, museum, modern art museum. And uh, I was surrounded by these abstract painters, Vassarelli, Modigliani, Polyakov, who are now famous names in art. So but you were there before it was cool, before it was yeah, famous. Before it was, and uh, I was uh, interviewed by by um, journalists for Le Mans and other Figaro because I was seventeen, <laughs> very young, but to, to be exhibited at such a famous installation, 
uh, the, the exhibition was called Reality Novel, actually. It was a, 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 a spring exhibition every spring in, in Paris. So I got to know these famous artists and uh, uh, I was with them for a year. And uh, then I ran out of money. I had to go back to Paris, to Copenhagen and uh, go back living with my parents again, small apartment. Uh, and um, I got interested in I started reading voraciously everything, classics. Are you a quick reader? No. I'm a slow reader. I absorb everything uh, carefully. That tends to be true of mathematicians. It turns out that if you study IQ, and IQ can fractionate into mathematical and verbal IQ, that verbal IQ is inversely proportional to mathematical. So the more highly gifted you are mathematically, the less you are verbally, and then the reverse tends to be true. I must say that at school I was not a very good student. Uh, I was, uh, I was, did, I, the only subject I did well in was chemistry. For some reason I was fascinated by chemistry. But not physics at this point? No, I was poor at physics and maths. And you didn't care too much about I physics? I didn't care about it. I didn't find it interesting. And this is around 15? Uh, no, this is around... 10, 11, okay. 12, 10, yeah. We were living in Glasgow at the time. What year is this? Uh, this would be 1942, 43. So this is during the war? During the war. Anyway, uh, so when actually when I left school in Copenhagen, I did try to get into university, and uh, I went, uh, in, in those days in Copenhagen, you... Uh, went to what's called gymnasium. It's more like, it's something like the old German system, educational system, and then you went into the university. So I was interviewed by this teacher, school teacher, to see why I should be admitted, uh, admitted to uh, the gymnasium, which is the portal for university. And uh, he asked me that. I, I should say, by the way, that... Um, during the war in Bristol, when we were in Bristol, this was 1942 in the Battle of Britain, July, August 1940, uh, there were bombings day and night. And uh, I did schooling underground, way underground, with sandbags. It was terrible. And the, the teaching was really quite not very good. And uh, anyway, so we went on a vacation to Western Supermare, a little seaside resort, coast of England. And we were walking along the beach road promenade, and suddenly these two Mr. Smith bombers came up, came by. I looked out, I could see the pilots in the plane, planes, and they dropped six bombs, and uh, they fell on the beach, which is right, this is to that tennis court, down there, and uh, that's not too far. Not too far. So they they went into the sand, which somewhat muffled the blast, but we were blown across the street. So I I suffer from PTSD. I still do actually to some extent. 
And uh, did you suffer any physical injuries? Yeah, I, well, I, was, I, was, I suffered a concussion. So uh, this had an effect on me. Back to the interview by the school teacher. I'm flashing back and forward. Right. He asked me these questions at the blackboard, mathematics. And because of my, what we now call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, I just froze. I couldn't, I froze. And uh, I couldn't answer any questions. So he said, he said, I can tell you, Moffat, that well, I'm actually sure you'll never become a mathematician. And he rejected me. I was rejected from going to the gymnasium. That was the end of the possibility of attending university uh, in, in Denmark. So anyway, back to, uh, so yeah, Paris, Copenhagen again. I got interested in, and I uh, did a lot of reading. So I read Arthur Eddington's books, popular books. I got very interested in that, in the, in the physics and astronomy. And uh, I started getting excited about that. So I decided this was something to pursue. So I started learning maths and physics. So it turned out that I could attend the library, university library, the university library, uh, the University of Copenhagen Library, uh, and get books on physics and maths, which is unusual for cities. You can't do that in the University of Toronto. A robust library, you have to be a member of the university. So, but back then, any member of the public could take out university. The public could go in. And uh, so I took out these books on maths and physics. So then I just, it just suddenly clicked. And within about a week or two, I learned calculus, trigonometry. Uh, within so you found that you had a natural aptitude for I had a natural or, aptitude for math. Or did you find some trick I that don't, helped you absorb I, I have to tell you, I never understood how I did this. To this day, you don't understand? I still don't understand it. And uh, <laughs> within a couple of months, I was moving fast, okay? I was going through all the mathematics. And, and physics, and uh, you must have had some great books too. Yeah, I had. I somehow understood as I moved forward uh, what to look for, what books to look for, and um, so within six months, I got up to general relativity, and uh, then I did general relativity within a month. <laughs> okay, for people listening. You went from a teacher saying that you're never going to learn mathematics to you also not knowing much of mathematics at that time to then you picking up your first book in the library for whatever reason you were curious about it to then learning general relativity in the span of six months when you were around 15 or so. Uh, no, 19, 20, 20. Yeah, um, up to then I had no interest in, uh, in, in science in general, but, uh, uh, but then I suddenly... Something lit up. <laughs> and um, so I, then I went on to Einstein's unified field theory and uh, studied that and found a problem with it. When you say Einstein's unified field theory, you're not referring to general relativity? No, this is uh, what he called the non-symmetric theory 
of gravitation. He called it a generalization of gravitation theory. He didn't call it unified field theory. Generalization of gravity. Ah, okay. Because this was around the time when Einstein was publishing. People, like for example me, we don't know much about what Einstein published that didn't work. We were only taught what worked, which is GR and the special relativity first. So I, don't, I actually don't know about the specifics of his unified field theory attempts. Yeah. Now he, when he, uh, this is a, a lot of this is described in my book, Reinventing Gravity. I go through the whole history of this. Um, after 1915-16 publication of General Relativity, uh, Einstein kept publishing applications like Detection of Gravitational Waves, his famous book on cosmology and so on, his famous article on cosmology. But he was more interested in unifying electromagnetism with gravity and making the one geometrical theory. Okay, And that, he started this in... Uh, uh, about 1918-1919. Isn't general relativity already compatible with electromagnetism? It was, because you can incorporate Maxwell's equations of electromagnetism into general relativity in what's called a covariant way, a way of, of not being dependent on any particular coordinate system. It's called the Einstein-Maxwell theory. And it is, just, but it, Maxwell's equations are not unified with gravity, so to speak, in a geometrical structure. Ah, okay. Um, so uh, he worked on and off on these unified theories, his generalization of gravitation theory, his theory. And in 1925, he, he for example, uh, he followed Kaluza and worked on higher dimensional gravity to include the electromagnetic field, Maxwell's equations. And he wasn't happy with that. And uh, then he, Weil, Hermann Weil, the famous German mathematician, who published a book, famous book on uh, Einstein's theory of gravity, called Ma Matter and Space-Time, Space-Time and Matter. Uh, he developed a unified theory called the Weyl Unified Field Theory. And uh, this was actually the beginnings of what's called gauge theory in quantum field theory, quantum physics. But that failed because Einstein criticized it. There was a problem with uh, understanding how clocks work in the theory because of this so-called gauge theory. And uh, But then in 1925, Einstein... Uh, generalized his general relativity theory by saying the following. General relativity is based on a space-time metric, which is a, it's what, it's a, a symmetric metric. It's a, a symmetric tensor, okay? G mu nu, it's called. <laughs> well, mu nu run over space-time coordinates, one to four. And... Uh, So he said, well, why should this metric, this tensor, be symmetric? It can be non-symmetric. You have a symmetric plus an anti-symmetric part added together. Just let me explain this a bit to the audience. So there's a, a metric, which is a two-tensor, and a tensor is what 
you can think of as taking two vectors, you know what a vector is, and then outputting what your underlying field is, which in most of the cases it's the real numbers. So that is, you eat two vectors. Give me two vectors and I'll give you a real number. And you have to satisfy some conditions like linearity and so on. You can also switch those two vectors. So you can say, give me a vector A, give me one vector, and then give me another one. Or give me that one and then give me the other one. So give me A and B, or give me B and A. And then if the result is the same in your calculation, then you call it symmetric. Okay. That's right. So, yeah. So, um, anyway, he developed the mathematics for this and uh, published it as a paper. In 1925, there was a lot of excitement about any publication that he produced because 1925 was famous, but the painting of light verified general relativity in 1919, Arthur Eddington's uh, expedition uh, to, to Africa and uh, solar eclipse and so on. And uh, anyway, so the, anyway, so back to the non-symmetric theory. Uh, then he left it and tried other, made, made other attempts to have a unified theory. He f felt they failed. So, uh, 1945, uh, in collaboration with Strauss, he was Einstein's assistant at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where he now is, okay, 1945 professor there in, in, in the Institute. Um, he went, went back to the non-symmetric theory and uh, worked it with, with Strauss. But there was a problem because the field equations of the theory are attractive, beautiful looking. Uh, it's quite natural to generalize Einstein's theory. There's no reason why this tensor should be symmetric, and some what's called the connection, uh, to, which is associated with the metric tensor, uh, at the affine connection, is also non-symmetric in this theory. And it has a symmetric part, which is the affine connection, which is not a tensor, and the anti-symmetric part, the skew part, which is, is a tensor. Anyway, so... Uh, it turned out that the field equations which are supposed to describe Maxwell's equations were not Maxwell's equations. And he couldn't get the equation of motion for a charged particle, what's called the, the Lorentz, Lorentz force law. Hendrik Lorentz, the Dutch physicist, uh, developed this at uh, the turn of the uh, 20th century. Uh, the Lorentz force on, on the charged particle didn't come out of the theory. This is really bad, serious. So uh, people criticized this in publications. And uh, so I looked at his theory and uh, I found another problem with it. Uh, so he did, at that time, he had what's called an emission metric tensor. So he had the symmetric part was real and the anti-symmetric part was, was an imaginary quantity, imaginary square root of minus one times the imaginary part. And uh, I found a problem with the 
the Lagrangian, what's called the action principle, from which you get the field equations. So I wrote him a letter, and I wrote two papers, actually. But that is to say you found a problem with the Lagrangian or the action that he did? The, uh, the, uh, the structure of the action as to whether it was real or not. The, the, the action had, the Lagrangian has to be real, okay? Otherwise you get into trouble with uh, uh, the development of the theory. It's not self-consistent. So I wrote these two papers, right? typed on an old typewriter. And uh, with the math symbols on the old typewriter too? No, I had to bring them by, by a pen. Okay. It's all very primitive compared to what we do today. And uh, sent them um, these manuscripts and the letter. I never expected to hear from them because I mean, famous Einstein. Like, people were writing to him all the time. It'd be like writing Obama and then Obama replying yeah, to him. Exactly. So, however. My criticism was was correct. <laughs> so twenty or twenty-two or what? twenty. Ninety-two. Uh, I was twenty. Yeah. And uh, so he read, looked at the manuscripts, and hmm, okay. So you corrected Einstein. Yeah. So I'm not correct. Einstein. I I questioned what he was doing, and uh, so he. Amazingly, and um, a letter comes in <laughs> from from Princeton, from Mercer Street, where he had his house, and uh, discussing my paper, papers, and and uh, discussing this issue I raised and so on. So we got into a correspondence, and uh, this went on for some months. And uh, I also criticised the fact that he was only unifying gravity with electromagnetism and that, that we knew about the nuclear force. I mean, there was, it was already nuclear, what we call nuclear physics. So you, how can you leave that out, okay? And he responded to that. So uh, then um, we, had, we had a friend, my father had a friend who was a, chemist and uh, living he called me an American and uh, he got to hear about me and uh, then he somehow got uh, Niels Bohr at the Bohr Institute got to hear about me and uh, I was invited to, to the Bohr Institute and I was interviewed by Niels Bohr for two hours. He criticized Einstein because people felt Einstein was wasting his time. Bohr criticized Einstein? Yeah, and said uh, that uh, Albert was wasting his time. and He, he said Albert's like an alchemist trying to turn lead into gold and so on and so on. I just sat there. Famous Nobel Prize winner thinks that another famous Nobel Prize winner is wasting his time. Okay, well, I didn't think Einstein was wasting his time. But, uh, he was doing unified theory before it ever became popular <laughs> at all. Okay, And uh, he was actually ignored at the Institute by physicists. All of his work was just wasting time. So, uh, 
So Paul said I was a British citizen, you see, because I never became a Danish citizen because I was born in Copenhagen, but I took my father's citizenship. So Paul got in touch with uh, the, the uh, consulate, British consulate in Copenhagen, uh, who got in touch with the Department of Scientific Industrial Research in, in London, and they invited me to London. <laughs> and uh, so I went there, and uh, they arranged me to, for me to be interviewed by professors to see whether I was the real article or some figment of somebody's imagination, including my own. And uh, I was interviewed by William McRae, a professor in London University. And uh, then I was sent to William Bonner, a professor at Liverpool University, who was working on Einstein's unified field theory. He was one of the people who criticized Einstein's theory for the fact that you couldn't get the equation of motion for a charged particle from the theory. And also that Maxwell's equations didn't look like Maxwell's equations as they should do. So, uh, so then I was sent to to Dublin to to Institute of Art Study in Dublin, and Armin Schrödinger, the famous Armin Schrödinger, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, the Schrödinger equation, was director of the institute. So I went there and. I went up and I was interviewed by Schrodinger. He sat on his bed with a whole cap on his head and small bedroom. And uh, he had my papers, which uh, I had sent Einstein. And, uh, so Einstein sent it to him? No, I Schrodinger's had lit. copies and I had just given them to Bohr and at the department of, uh, that I was invited to in London and so on, people, and they sent it to Schrodinger. So then he got angry and said, why are you using Albert's methods to do this theory? Because Schrodinger was working on the non-symmetric theory. He published several papers, published in the, in the um, uh, proceeding the Royal Irish Academy, uh, which published papers on Greek philosophy and all sorts of issues. And um, uh, there was a dispute between Einstein and Schrodinger, it turned out, uh, because Schrodinger was interviewed by newspapers because of his uh, publication of uh, Unified Field Theory and uh, claimed that he had solved the problem. And Albert wasn't happy about this because he had solved the problem. So they had this dispute. And Pauli had to intervene because they got, it got rather heated. <laughs> Poor Albert threatened to sue Schrodinger. Oh, yeah? <laughs> so, anyway, so uh, Pauli damned things out. Wolfgang Pauli, famous physicist, uh, Nobel Prize winner. And... Um, Anyway, so this was the atmosphere I was interviewed in, and uh, 
So Schrodinger had his way of deriving the non-symmetric theory, and Einstein had his way doing it. And so Schrodinger was angry because I wasn't using Erwin Schrodinger's way. Okay, why are you not using my way? <laughs> I, I said I, I, I will do that in future. <laughs> and uh, I had to be diplomatic. Anyway, so back to London. So the next thing is that Schrodinger sent a letter to the people in London, this Department of Scientific Research in London, and uh, the letter of recommendation must have been something, because uh, the next thing is I'm sent to Trinity College, Cambridge, to be interviewed by Dennis Sharma, who was a student of Paul Dirac. And uh, he was a Don Fellow of Trinity College, and he was also a lecturer at the time at Cambridge University. And uh, so I was interviewed by Sharma in his rooms at Trinity, and uh, after about 20 minutes he said, come with me. So we walk across the Trinity Great Court lawns. Only a Don can walk on the lawns. I was with him, I couldn't see him, and uh, otherwise you had to walk on the gravel path. And uh, taken to the bursar's office at Trinity, and Dennis said, this gentleman, John Moffat, has to be matriculated as a PhD student at the... And this is without an undergraduate degree, nor a master's. So they looked into this person, he said, but he doesn't have any degree, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, no, okay. So we're matriculating him. And yes, okay. All right. So that <laughs> so I was given a, a supervisor, a professor, a supervisor, Fred Hoyle. And uh, I went to see him at St. John's College in his rooms. And he said, Well, you don't have an undergraduate degree. No. Well, maybe you should think about taking the tripos exams. These are the famous exams, undergraduate exams at Cambridge. There's something called the mathematics tripos, first part and second part, and so on. And uh, well, I I was rather precocious and somewhat, somewhat arrogant, I should say, as a young man. I, I fell out. I, so I said, well. Uh, uh, Professor Howard is just, just as good as going to waste my time because I know all this. Okay, so he he looked at me dubiously. He went through the tripos himself. In his biography, Howard's biography, he had problems with that getting through. And he was brilliant, of course, but they were very hard exams. And uh, so he probably thought, well. If I had to do this, why is this, this person with no 20-21-year-old, 20, you know, so I can understand his attitude. So I decided that something should be done about this. So I wrote three papers, okay, within two or three months, and uh, submitted it to the proceedings of Cambridge Philosophical Society. And the first paper was uh, 
very mathematical. It's a generalization of Riemannian geometry. And the other two were my first modified gravity theory. And uh, long papers. Uh, the paper on the, um, I was trying to unify gravity and electromagnetism in my own way, okay? So I invented this. Not showing us way. Not showing and no angst. This is a different way of doing it. And uh, they accepted them, three papers. So, I mean, Cambridge proceedings has an ancient history. I mean, famous mathematicians and physicists have published there. Schrodinger published papers there in quantum mechanics. So I went back to, to Fred Hoyle and uh, I gave him the papers. And he sat and looked at them. And he said, well, forget about the tripods exam. Just continue with what you're doing. <laughs> and that was it. So I did my own research. I went, had to go to um, California to do his steady-state theory and work with Fowler, William Fowler at the at Caltech in Pasadena and uh, visit other institutions. So I had to get another supervisor, so I got Abdul Salam, uh, who was at that time a lecturer at St. John's College, where Dirac was. And uh, I just did my own thing. I attended two courses. I never took any exams. I didn't bother with that. But I attended a couple of, I attended Dirac's course twice, because it was brilliant, and I just, Quantum guys, I was fascinated. Well, I learned quantum guys myself. How was Dirac as a teacher, as a lecturer? Very good, very clear, excellent. Um, Did he speak much? He has a reputation. He started saying... off with a, in a loud voice, and uh, to make sure that he was being heard, and then even especially in the back of the classroom, a lot of the students attended. All, all the graduate students, research students attended in physics because they were famous. It's based on his book on quantum mechanics. And uh, then his voice would be some more muted because he realized that people were beginning to, that the people were able to understand his speech. Anyway, uh, so uh, I continued my work on. Uh, General Relativity, I worked on the equations of motion in General Relativity. It's what's called the einstein for hoffman method. And I worked on my unified theory. This was going to be my thesis. And then I switched to particle physics uh, because I was already well ahead with uh, my gravity work. But I started becoming interested in particle physics and quantum field theory. So I started doing quantum field theory. And, and uh, by the way, in the first year as a student, there were about six or seven of us in the maths department, what's called Bennett Street, Cambridge. And um, we had a room where we kind of could meet, a big room. And uh, so after a year, we were told to give a lecture. We had seminars every Thursday. 
and uh, I had to give a seminar on my work, which was on quantum field theory, not gravity. And uh, I worked on the axiomatics of quantum field theory and what's called Hagg's theorem, uh, developed by, developed by, developed by um, a German physicist called Hagg, Rudolf Hagg. And Pauli worked on this Hagg's theorem at the time, Wolfgang Pauli. So I gave this lecture, and uh, it was fairly original work. And uh, I used um, notation of Fried, Fried, Friedman, uh, American quantum field theorist in New York University, published a book. So I, Dirac, said to me, asked a question, he says, what are those round brackets? I said, this is what you call bras and kits, the triangular brackets. And he said, well, that's very interesting. He was fascinated by this. Who invented this? <laughs> Professor Friedman. Anyway, so, so uh, three, of, three of them were failed. It was pretty brutal. There was no exam. We were just to give this lecture on original physics research. And if you didn't make it, you were out. You were sent down from Cambridge. And uh, so I was one of the ones who survived. So, PhD in 1958. Uh, during the course of my work, uh, I met Roy Kerr, the Kerr metric. He, he came in from New Zealand to be at Trinity College, where we were, became friends. And he said, what should I do? I said, well, I said, what about physics? You know, he, he was a brilliant mathematician. I said, well, do gravity, general relativity. You don't have to worry too much about the physics at the moment. Because general relativity was not that well developed at this point. We're talking about 1956, 57. So even after Einstein died, general relativity wasn't no. completely developed? No. So the general relativity that we learned in university is the fully articulated form that Einstein didn't even put? Yeah, it was being developed, still being developed and so on at the time, and mathematically speaking. There was not enough experimental data, you see. Uh, it was not, the cosmology was in infancy. During my work, I read a paper by Einstein and Infel, published in 1949. And uh, Infel was a Polish physicist, more so. And uh, I found a mistake. It was wrong. <laughs> so I got hold of Roy, Roy and I said, have a look at this. this. I did the calculations. And uh, he looked at it and he said, yeah, you're right, it's wrong. <laughs> so we wrote a paper together, we thought we should do something about this. And there was a famous paper, there was a famous photograph of Albert Einstein at the front of the, at the front of the paper. And this was, it was the Canadian Journal of Mathematics that published the paper. And this photograph was by Karsh, famous photographer called Karsh. And uh, anyway, so, uh, we wrote up this paper, sent it to Physical Review. It was in, it was uh, reviewed by Peter Bergman, 
who was one of Einstein's assistants at the Institute at one point. Uh, he was editor, one of the editors of Physical Review, and he wrote back saying, "You can't, we can't publish this paper because it's uh, besmarks the reputation of famous physicist Albert Einstein." So I got upset about that, <laughs> and uh, I, I was kind of angry about that. I, I was at the verge of leaving physics. I I can't deal with this, you know. So, because you have responsibility for posterity, younger physicists who can use this work. So, I got my PhD. Uh, they were not happy about it. I put this, I, well, I started working on it to, to correct it, okay, and wrote a paper, and I put it into my PhD thesis. And my examiners were, not entirely happy about this. And, uh, but there wasn't anything they could do about it. So, uh, I then uh, eventually I got my PhD without an undergraduate degree. By the way, I was, I think the one at that time, maybe still, the only student at Trinity to get a PhD without an undergraduate degree. Mm. I think in theoretical physics, anyway, that I know. Maybe that's still true, I don't know. But um, um, so it's fairly unique. The examiners weren't happy about that either, of course, because they had this guinea pig, okay, uh, so to speak, who was going through the system in Cambridge. Is it possible to do this, okay? Well, I did it. So uh, then I got a fellowship from the same department, Industrial Scientific Industrial Research, who originally got me to, to England, uh, to a two-year fellowship. And so I went to Imperial College. In the meantime, Abdus Salam was made professor at Imperial College London. And uh, here I was, I was put in an office next to his office. <laughs> I was his first postdoctoral fellow and uh, started working in particle physics and field theory. And, uh, but uh, I was worrying about getting a job. At this point, I, I was married to my dad. And uh, uh, so I got hold of, I, I um, corresponded with John Wheeler, and he suggested I apply for a job at the at the Institute for Research in Baltimore, Maryland which I did, they offered me a job. So I went there in 1959 and uh, was at this institute. I was a senior researcher there. I was doing particle physics and field theory. They also had a math department. And uh, Solomon Lifshitz was the director of the math. The famous math, math institute there. And uh, then, uh, Quickly, uh, well, I published papers in particle physics. Um, published a lot of papers rapidly in physics, particle physics. Uh, then I was offered a job at University of Toronto uh, as an associate professor already, with the promise of being 
made full professor within a couple of years, which again is very unusual. And uh, went got a job there. Had to do teaching, full-time teaching. So I started teaching undergraduate courses, and I never, I never attended undergraduate courses, but I, I did okay. <laughs> and um, graduate courses and so on. So that's it. Uh, Do you know who Brian Keating is? He's an experimental physicist. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I read his book. Oh, how to lose the Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah, quite an amusing, entertaining book.